This is the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the show for real estate investors, stock traders, and business owners. We help you keep more of what you earn and protect what you've built. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Anderson Podcast. My name is Toby Mathis, and I'm joined by Kareem Hanafi. Welcome back, sir. Hello. Thank you. It's great to be back. Today, we're going to go over the top 10 mistakes that people make when forming and operating a nonprofit. Since Kareem's an expert in this area, I thought there's nobody better to have come in and discuss it. So in just a, in, in a few lines, what is your background in the nonprofit world? People should know, and they might remember that you're an attorney, but what gives you specific credibility here? Well, I've been working in this area for over 20 years, and I did start at the IRS. I was in the tax exempt in the government entities division, where we basically just reviewed applications for exemption, the 1023 applications for organizations that want to become a 501c3. So I'd reviewed hundreds and hundreds of different types of applications, public charities and private foundations. So I've seen everything. I believe I have, you know, and not only within the IRS, but in private practice as well. I've been in private practice for over 15 years now. And again, you know, working with clients to set up these nonprofit organizations to set up these 501c3s and apply for exemption. So I feel like I've seen almost everything you can imagine because I've looked and probably reviewed and prepared uh, over 1,000 applications up at this point easily. Wow. So you have a little bit of experience in that area. You came from the IRS and you've seen a ton of mistakes probably made. So let's dive into them. So we wanted to go over 10. We're going to go over 10 top 10 mistakes, not in any particular order, right? We're just going to go through yeah. these? Yes. Yeah. No. All right. So let, let's go through them. What do you think is number one? Well, the first one is, and this is something that we've seen, I'd seen quite often when I was at the IRS, is the improper structure from the very start. So many organizations think, and I've seen this, it's, it's unbelievable, but for-profit corporation has been a common thing that we had seen. Instead of what you should do is set it up as a non-profit corporation. You have other options, but Without a doubt, the simplest is a nonprofit corporation. But instead, we've seen organizations set up as a for-profit. We've seen as, as a B Corp, which is, you know, basically a for-profit that's certified as a nonprofit. We've seen it also as LLCs, even though it's very popular in the for-profit area. It's not as popular within the nonprofit area and even trusts. And, you know, of course, the for-profit and the B Corps, those are not permissible, not allowed. And then within, within as an LLC, those cause some delays for the application process. So without a doubt, the easiest is just set it up as a nonprofit corporation. You get all the benefits and you get the protections, um, you know, and as long as you fill out the, you, you know, you, you prepare the articles of incorporation correctly and submit it, then it will be approved and it's not going to be delayed like it would with these other entities. And, th and that's in a particular state, right? Like when we're talking about filing a nonprofit corporation, we're talking very state specific. Yes. It's not yeah. a federal filing. And then there's magic language you have to include in those, right? Yeah. And that's the second mistake is the articles of incorporation. You know, you're completing it according to the state requirements. So, and I can give you an example. If you go to a state like Florida, so you're going to complete it according to the requirements for the state, but it may not be according to the IRS's requirements. So if you apply it, Florida, articles of incorporation, they have a template there. You're going to set it up as a nonprofit corporation. You fill out the form. It, you fill out everything that it's required, that it's asking you to do from the name of the organization, the address, the officers, the charitable purpose, and then a registered agent. And you include all of that and you submit it. Well, the Flo Florida Secretary of State 
will approve it. But the problem is that even though it's going to follow the state requirements, that doesn't follow the IRS requirements. Specifically, the IRS wants some additional language in there. They want you to include at a minimum the dissolution clause, which states that if the nonprofit ever dissolves, the assets of this nonprofit must go to another 501c3 organization. Because if you don't include it, then it means that the nonprofit could take these taxpayer dollars and give it to the officers and directors. And the IRS does not want that. And I can tell you when I worked at the IRS, how many times we had seen the articles of incorporation that were deficient because it didn't include the dissolution clause. And they would always tell us, you know, it was approved at the state level, and which is a valid point, but that's only necessary to help you set you up as a nonprofit. That's a state term. If you want to be a 501c3, you have to include the dissolution clause. So in a state like Florida, it can take five weeks to get the articles of incorporation approved. But to revise the Articles of Incorporation to add that dissolution clause, it can take up to 12 weeks. So imagine five weeks plus 12 weeks plus another six months that it takes for the processing times with the IRS. You're looking at up to a year that your organization's 501c3 application can get approved. It can take up to a year simply because you didn't include the dissolution clause within the Articles of Incorporation. So it is extremely important that you get it right the first time to avoid any delays. So there's magic language in the articles of incorporation. You got to make sure that you're setting it up right. There's probably different, there's variations with all the states, right? Depending on how many directors you can have, what they can and cannot do, where you should set it up, all that fun stuff. But then you also have to worry that the feds say, uh, it's not all just 501c3s out there, right? You have business organizations, fraternal organizations, you have black lung societies, right? Like there's all these different types of nonprofits. What are there? 29 of them or how many are there? Yeah, there's 29. Yeah. 29 different flavors. And so you, if you're going to be a 501c3, one of those flavors that's that that's going to receive charitable donations, then you got to have that special language in there. Let's talk about special language. What's number three? The third most common mistake is describing your activities as being charitable. You know, a lot of times when we've seen the application, again, whether it's with the IRS or in private practice, you know, a lot of times the organization's they're describing it like it's an investor letter. You know, you're, you're describing it as if it's profitable, how you can get a return on your investment sort of thing in the approach, rather than describing it as to why the activities are charitable. And that's what's the important thing. It's not about a for-profit motive, even though you can operate, you know, with a for-profit you, or you can be profitable, which is perfectly fine, but you have to explain exactly why the activities are charitable. You know, always tell a story give the background. For example, you know, we see a housing shortage underbuilt by 7 million up to this point, you know, and and you see that there are low-income families who are getting priced out of of this area, being able to afford a house. So perhaps your nonprofit wants to provide affordable housing for low-income families. So you see that there's a problem, that there's a shortage. You see that there's basically the prices keep going up. The nonprofit wants to come in will make housing available to low-income families who otherwise cannot find housing. Maybe they cannot afford it either, so you're working with them to provide the housing. Or perhaps it's medical cost, as another example. You can't afford medical insurance or you can't afford to pay for your medical bills. The nonprofit sees the need there and you're going to help to cover these costs. Or for students, providing scholarships for students who can't afford an education as well. So you see, this is this is where the problems are. This is where the needs are. And the nonprofit has the solution. This is what they're going to do to fix it. You know, they're helping a charitable class. 
And organizations just don't do a good job of explaining how they are serving a charitable purpose and serving and benefiting that charitable class. They don't do enough of that. And instead, they like to explain their backgrounds, you know, and what they're doing, their affiliations that they may have with other organizations, but again, not focusing on what the charitable activities are. Okay. So we have the first three improper structure, uh, screwing up the articles of incorporation, not putting in the magic language, and then they're not describing their activities right. Let's dive into number four. Yeah, the fourth is using the wrong terminology. Now, there may be words that you're using within the application that you don't realize is going to trigger a delay. For example, you can't use words like partnerships. They hate that. A partnership to them, to the, to the IRS means you are working with a for-profit entity mm-hmm. and the for-profit entity has a for-profit motive. They want to make money for their investors and their shareholders. Whereas the IRS wants to see that the nonprofit has sort of control over it. So if there is ever a dispute between a for-profit and a nonprofit, that the nonprofit kind of has the veto power that it's being done for a charitable purpose over a profitable purpose and motive. Are, are there other terms that you see too that cause this delay? Yes. Uh, the term advocacy. So advocacy can mean 10 different things, but to the IRS, advocacy means either you're working with Candidates that are running for office, whether you are supporting or opposing a candidate that's running for office, which is completely prohibited, or you're doing advocacy, which means that you are working with congressional members to pass a bill, perhaps, or maybe you're opposing and want to veto a bill or a law that's going to be passed within Mm -hmm. Congress as well. And this is considered to be advocacy. And you are limited to how much you can do in terms of these types of activities. You can only do an insubstantial amount, which is a, which is a low amount. So when they see the word advocacy, they're assuming that you are doing these types of activities, which can be prohibited altogether, or you're limited by what you can do. Mm-hmm. And then finally, another example, which is an interesting one is financial literacy. This is a term that the IRS looks at and they think of credit counseling and credit counseling is one that is under heavy scrutiny by the IRS. And it has been almost 20 years at this point, because they realize that with credit counseling organizations and agencies, a lot of times they collect the fees up front without doing anything to benefit and help the individuals who are having issues with their credit or with their finances. So, you know, financial literacy is is actually a question that's asked in the application. And many organizations, if you check yes on that, then it's going to get a delay because they're going to follow up with you about wanting to know whether or not you are a credit counseling organization. So what would you do instead? If you were, if you had somebody who's like, right, financial literacy, but would you just say education? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you can, you can mention that, that you, you are, you know, educating them and rather than even using, if you want to use financial literacy, you can, but rather than doing that, another option is you can also describe the activities of what you're doing. Perhaps you're going to describe them about investing in the market, investing in real estate, how to repair your credit scores, you know, how to invest in, in into your 401k. So you can always describe the types of activities that you're doing without actually using the term financial literacy. So through no fault of your own, you might say something as you, you understand it as financial literacy and you don't realize it's a buzzword exactly. for the IRS. Like, Anytime somebody says that, they do you a deep dive and it's going to delay you six months. Yeah. So somebody knows what they're doing, it deals with this stuff, says, yeah, here's the words we never use. 
So yeah. make sure that you don't use one of those words. How about this? Make sure you use somebody who knows what they're doing. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> let's go to number five. What's number five? Number five is the improper classification. So as a 501c3, you're either a public charity or you're a private foundation. Both of them, you're going to get the tax benefits. But it's also a good idea to get an understanding because it's not one size fits all. It's going to depend on what you want and what your objectives are. If number one, your objective is tax deductibility, you want to get the deductions for your charitable contributions. Well, if you donate appreciated assets, for example, and let's say it's worth $25,000, that's how much you paid, and now it's worth $250,000. Well, within a private foundation, you can only deduct your cost, which is $25,000. But within a public charity, you can deduct up to $250,000, the fair market value of that appreciated asset, without having to pay taxes on it. So you get a more favorable deduction. So it depends on what type of assets you want to contribute into the nonprofit. Number one. Number two, if you're going to operate internationally, well, it's going to be more difficult doing it with a private foundation versus a public charity. And then if you're applying for grants as well, it's going to be almost impossible to receive grants if you are a private foundation, especially if it's a private foundation that is the funder because they have to give out to other 501c3 public charities. They can't give it to other private foundations. What's an easy way to understand the difference between a public charity and a private foundation? Well, I mean, the, it, it really is a classification, number one, on the application. On the 1023 application, it asks, how do you want to be classified? Are you a public charity or private foundation? And many people assume that the private foundation is because of the fact that it's funded by one individual. It's also funded and it's operated and controlled possibly by one family. This is the common characteristics of what you see with a private foundation. However, you can have something like that within a public charity as well, is that you can have these characteristics within it initially. But, you know, you have to be able to receive public funding and public support. So you need to be receiving donations from the public, whether it's from individuals, whether it's from other nonprofit organizations, private foundations or government grants as well. So you need to be receiving that sort of funding within a public charity, whereas the private foundations typically don't receive that type of funding. It's usually set up by the founder with an initial amount that's being put in and it's able to sustain the operations of that private foundation for a number of years. What if you have a charity that you, I think you mentioned, uh, you know, housing and things like that, and you're doing low, low, low income housing. Yeah. What if you throw some houses in there and then it's producing income? Does that help at all or, or, or no? Absolutely, it does, especially for a public charity. And the reason why is because if you receive funding for Section 8 housing, for example, if you receive it from HUD, these are treated as government grants and not donations. And government grants work more favorably than than uh, individual donations. So absolutely, you can do that um, as a public charity. Alternatively, it could be a private operating foundation, which is also a very favorable classification. So you have one of these two options if you're going to do affordable housing. But we're always going to recommend, first and foremost, it would be the public charity because it's easier operationally and behaviorally for many of the clients to be able to operate as a public charity because you don't have the same number of restrictions that you have as you do with a private foundation. Now, we do have clients who are private foundations that exist, but more of them are public charities because it is easier behaviorally for that. And you get a higher degree of deduction. If I give cash to a, to a, to a public charity, I can write up what 60% of my adjusted gross income. It went as high as a hundred percent during the, d during COVID. 
exactly. whatever it may be, there's a, there's a cash contribution and it's cut in half. Essentially it's like 30% when it's a private foundation. Yeah, that's correct. So, yeah. so, if, so if you're donating money, you, you know, in your a heavy giver, you might want to make sure that, uh, that well, whether or not that, that triggers. All right, let's jump into number six. I think we're at. Yeah. Number six is compensating directors and officers. Now, within the application, it does ask if you will be compensating directors and officers. And, you know, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing prohibited with compensating directors and officers. But what we've realized is that the reality is, you know, directors, officers, they don't tend to work that often within the nonprofit. Generally speaking, you know, I, I actually worked with the Coca-Cola Foundation. One of their direct, one of the directors was Warren Buffett and he shows up for an annual meeting. And that's pretty much the extent of what he does, not too involved in any of the day-to-day operations and the activities that you see there. And that's typically how directors are. But for many of our clients, you know, they're directors, they may be officers, but they're also involved in the day-to-day operations. So it seems that the appropriate fit for many of them is pay yourself as an employee. You're an executive director. You could be dealing with social media. You could be dealing with the management of the operations of the organizations. You could be an admin, in fact, if, if you wanted to, because you're involved in the day-to-day operations. Whereas a director, typically a couple hours in a month, maybe a couple hours quarterly, you know, maybe even less than that. You're not really involved that much as a director. And even as an officer, you're not as involved. But as an employee, you are involved quite a bit. So, you know, my recommendation is, first of all, again, compensating as a director and officer could cause a delay in the application process. But if you pay yourself as an executive director, for example, you know, that's an appropriate fit for the type of work that you're doing. So that's always our recommendation is pay yourself as an employee and not as a director or an officer. So as an officer and director, you just say no. Nobody's going to get compensated. But if you do work, it doesn't prohibit you from paying yourself as an employee. Exactly. So on your application, just don't put that you're going to get paid. You're going to pay your officers and directors, right? Yeah. Just yeah. Pay yourself as an employee. Just say no. Yeah. Pay yourself as an employee, as an executive director, for example, if you want. Just say no to directors and officers. Yeah. Yeah. The Nancy Reagan. Just say no. All <laughs> right. Uh, what's number seven? We're up to seven. Wow, you got 10 of these. Yeah, (laughs) there could be more even. So (laughs) number seven is, let's say you have the 501c3. Congratulations, you're exempt now. But perhaps you're not, you haven't done any activities and you don't realize it, even though you haven't funded it, you haven't made any donations to the nonprofit, you're still required to file a tax return. And we've seen many organizations that don't file their tax returns. And if you don't do it for three years, if you fail to file your tax returns for three consecutive years, the IRS will automatically revoke your exemption. So you would have to apply for, you have to reinstate your organization as a, as a 501c3. And we have done this a number of times for many organizations that forget to file their own tax returns. So their status has been revoked. And in fact, you can even go to the IRS website and you'll see a number of them that says auto revocation is what it says on there because of the fact that they don't file the tax returns. So you have to be, you have to keep up with your annual filings for your organization, even if you're not operating at this point. As long as you're a 501c3, you have to file a tax return. Yeah. You still have to do it, even if it, it's really small. Like if you're not ma- making, what is it, $50,000 worth of contributions, it's a postcard, right? It's, exactly. These things are big. It, it takes no more than five minutes to do. If, if, no if, reason if, not if to you, do it. Yeah. If you have to do the postcard, it, t- it will take no more than five minutes for sure. All right. What's number? So that's number seven. And let's, let's go back through these real quick. So improper structure, 
screwing up your articles, messing up the way you describe your charitable activities, using the wrong terminology, using one of these these trigger words that cause them to do a deep dive into you, mm-hmm. improper classification, and then saying you're going to compensate officers and directors, and then not filing tax returns. What's number eight? Number eight is you should consult with an expert before you're going to make donations of certain types of properties or assets. For example, donating crypto has a reporting requirement that's different from donating stocks. Even though there's a market that's available and you can look at any time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, unlike the stock market, to determine what the price of crypto is, you still have to get it appraised by a qualified appraiser, even though you can find out what the price of it is. You have to use a qualified appraiser and you have to fill out specific forms as well whenever you are making donations using, you know, uh, making donations for something like crypto. In addition, if you donate property that has a mortgage on it, this can have a, a detrimental effect on you and your taxes. We have seen situations where clients donated the property that had a mortgage. And when we ran the numbers, it turned out they actually owed money for this donation. Instead of getting a, a, a charitable contribution and getting a deduction for it, they actually owed money for it. So is, is that is that because the charity is now responsible for the mortgage or something and you have mortgage relief? Well, what happens is that when it comes to a mortgage on there, it, it's, it's sort of a relief. And so what they're looking at it is they're treating it as a sale and they're treating it as a sale by the individual. So part of that sale um, kind of looks and it compares the mortgage that you have versus what you paid for it. And they treat that as a sale, whereas the part that doesn't have the mortgage is treated as a donation. So it's a it's a really confusing formula as to how they do it. But the fact that you are donating the property with the mortgage means that they're treating it as a sale that's not beneficial as it would be if you were selling the property as a that was a primary residence, you know, because you do have the, the capital gains exclusion under that. You don't get that when you're donating it with a mortgage to the nonprofit. You're not you don't get that exclusion for that. So have somebody run the numbers before you do it. And so exactly. you're saying don't. Like, don't just give money to a charity. Actually look at the tax ramifications of what if you do. There's everything from carry forwards. Like, hey, sometimes people give an asset that's that's a higher percentage of their income than they're allowed to to, to deduct. And they, they, they don't know what happens. You carry that forward for five years, things like that. You just want to talk to somebody who knows the rules. Yeah, it, yeah. it is a good idea because, you know, we, we can tell you what the deductions are. We've, we've said 30% of your adjusted gross income for non-cash and 60% for cash, but it's always good to run the numbers to see how it's going to work in your favor because for the 30% of your adjusted gross income, as you'd see for the non-cash contributions, mm-hmm. you, you may see that you're not going to be able to get that full benefit in the first year. It may have to be carried forward over the next five years. So it's always a good idea to speak with someone before doing that. So make sure that you're documenting appropriately. If it's over a certain dollar amount, you have to have an appraisal, right? So yeah. what's that dollar amount? It's $5,000. 5000 bucks. So yeah. you got to be careful. Yeah. All right. What's number nine? Number nine is the nonprofit forgets to send a donor letter to anyone who makes a contribution to the nonprofit. And you see this with larger organizations. When you make donations, they send you that email, they send you a letter, but it turns out it's IRS compliant. The IRS requires certain language to be included within a letter and the IRS requires the nonprofit, they require the donor to receive a donor acknowledgement letter for any contributions that they make to a nonprofit organization. 
So, you know, the it's and it's not the nonprofit's requirement. It is the donor's requirement. But because of the fact that we know that donors don't always remember this rule, you know, it's important for the nonprofit to send that letter. So even if it's your nonprofit that you've set up and that you've donated, that nonprofit needs to send you a letter. And, you know, the IRS has disallowed and they've won time and time and time again that if it doesn't follow the correct rules and requirements that the IRS requires for it, it can be disallowed. And and we've seen it for as low as hundreds of dollars to millions of dollars where the IRS in these situations have won and they acknowledge that a donation was made. They're not disputing the fact that the don- donation was made. That seems evil. Yeah, it it is, you know, it, but it was disputed because they didn't follow the IRS rules and regulations for the requirements could, of what that letter must contain. It must contain. But the donor, couldn't they argue mutual mistake between the charity and the donor and say, give me my money back? I, I was mistaken. We both thought this was a deductible expense and it was predicated on the deduction. And therefore, like, don't you, doesn't that get people in hot water? Although I imagine people aren't going to go back and. Yeah. I don't think it would work at that point. Once you, once you, once you're audited and you're down that path and you're down that road, that just seems really bad. That you, so I didn't get a letter. Usually, it's the letter that says what, like nothing of value was exchanged for, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. So for cash, if it's just a cash contribution, you you want, you want, yeah, you want to, you want to include the language that says no goods or services were given in exchange. At a minimum, you need to include mm-hmm. that. And if, if it's for non-cash, then again, you need to require, you need to follow the, the requirements where you have a qualified appraiser and the appraiser has to fill out a form. It's a, it can be form 8283 or one of the forms. And, and we've seen it was disallowed because the form was not signed. So the form was filled out, but it wasn't signed. So that became an issue and a problem as well. So, you know, it, it, is, it is a strict horrible. compliance rule. It's not substantial compliance under these cases. It's strict compliance. If you don't comply with this 100%, they can disallow it. And again, there was one as high as $64 million that recently came out over the past year. So these are harsh rules here. So you want to make sure that you but that seems That seems really, really like there must be something else going on. Because if you're giving $64 million to a charity, you're doing good. The IRS doesn't imagine they wouldn't want to thwart that, but maybe there's something else going on with that individual. And they're saying, well, technically we can deny you this. Maybe they're using it as a tool, but it just seems like it flies in the face of logic. I, I agree. It's, it's, it's a possibility, you know, but, but I, I have seen disputes um, and I've, I've worked with them as well with some of these disputes where they mm-hmm. were significant amounts. And, you know, many times either what would happen is, they would settle for a different amount rather than disallowing the full amount um, or they would disallow for the full amount for it because of the fact that, you know, and again, with each scenario, um, they weren't disputing the fact that it was made and that it was donated. And one was highly publicized that I had dealt with as well. It was highly publicized about the donation. So the IRS knew about it. They wanted, they were, they were fighting the organization over, over the fact that they had claimed that the, it didn't comply with the IRS rules and regulations. And, you know, IRS publication 1771, definitely highly recommend that you look at that to understand the rules. That's horrible, but it's understood. So make sure that you do it. Yeah. I always assume that there's something else going on. Like maybe the value of the, uh, of the donation tanked, maybe it was FTX or something like that, or somebody was doing, and uh, they're like, oh, I get this big write-off and the IRS is just finding a way to, to say no. <laughs> 
What's the last one? I think that that was number nine. So we should be at number 10. Yeah. Number 10 is, is asset protection. Um, you know, if you, we, we've discussed about the affordable housing, assuming, and let's assume that as a nonprofit, you purchase one, two, three, 10 houses. Don't put them all into the same nonprofit. If something happens on the premises of one house, one property, then it's possible and you face the risk that a creditor, if they win in a lawsuit, can take all the other assets to cover that lawsuit. So our recommendation, and it's something that we certainly do within Anderson very well, is the asset protection. Put it in a, as an example, a single member LLC that's owned and operated and controlled by that nonprofit. Now, the fact that the organization is a 501c3 means that these single member LLCs are automatically going to be 501c3 as well if they are owned and controlled by the nonprofit. So it's a simple process to do and it protects all of the other properties and assets that you have within that nonprofit. And it's often overlooked. So just because it's a nonprofit, the nonprofit may offer you some asset protection from its activities. But if you have things in there that'll create liability, you're saying, isolate them just like you would in any other business or in your own, in yeah. your own world. And it, it is a misconception. And I've heard it many times thinking that you can't sue a nonprofit or you can't recover from oh, a they nonprofit. sue nonprofits. Yeah. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. You, you can, you can go after a nonprofit just like any other organization and you can go after those assets just like any other organization. So yes, they are, they are at risk as well. You know, whether it's the asset protection with a single member LLC or even directors and officers insurance, something like that. These sort of things will at least, you know, kind of reduce the risks and at least minimize, you know, the, the liability that you would have in terms of any organization or any creditor coming after that nonprofit. Well, that was great. So we just did the top 10 mistakes people make when forming and operating a nonprofit. That's a pretty comprehensive list. I know you said that there was more, but I, I think that you just gave a lot of people a lot to think about. But just let me just run through them. So we'll go 10, 10 to 1. You ran over asset protection, making sure that you're, you're isolating the assets inside that charity, just like you would in any other, in your individual realm or in a business, you still want to mitigate the, uh, the, the liability that comes with certain risk assets. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the charity doesn't send out a donor letter and it disallows the deduction. So make sure that you get that donor letter. Uh, sometimes you, somebody did not consult with their expert or with their professional before donating assets. And for whatever reasons, they didn't follow the, the rules with regards to getting an appraisal or whatnot and could cause you to lose the the donation or there's a tax consequence to the donation like when you have a mortgage. Number seven was, hey, you, you forgot to file your tax returns or you didn't file tax returns on your charity. And as a result, it was uh, dissolved, administratively dissolved by the IRS. I mean, I guess the state would still be going on, but the IRS terminates its tax exempt status, which could be pretty uh, rude awakening there. Number six is don't put in that you're going to compensate your officers and directors unless you absolutely have to, because that's a big red flag for the IRS. Uh, number six is, or number five was a, you, you improperly classified the type of charity and it's going to cause you delay that is unneeded. And then number four is you use the wrong terminology. And this was the one I said was buzzwords. You're using buzzwords that are going to cause the IRS to dig into you and to delay the whole process. Number three was, hey, you got to make sure that you're describing your activities as being charitable. This is not a business plan for a for-profit or for angel investors. This is, hey, this is why we're what we're doing is for the public good. So the IRS approves you. Number two is, 
articles of incorporation. Use a professional because there's magic language that you have to put into those articles. The state doesn't require it, but the IRS does. You will not get your exemption unless you have this magic language in there. So make sure you have the magic language in the articles of incorporation. And number one was the proper structure from the start. People don't realize that just because it's a federal exemption that that they skip past what you do with the state or they do something really simple like, hey, I set up an LLC with the state. And as a result, it caused you all sorts of problems and delays trying to get your exemption that there is a way to do this the right way that the IRS is used to. And that is to use a corporation, a nonprofit corporation. Don't use a for-profit corporation, but that's number one. So that was 10. Did I miss any? No, that's 10. We nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, so Kareem, thank you for coming on and giving us the, the top 10 mistakes people make when forming or operating a nonprofit. Anything else you want to add? Uh, no, I mean, you know, of course, my, my plug is going to be use Anderson, use us because we've done this hundreds and hundreds of times, you know, it's probably new to you, but it's not new to us. So we are aware of what it is that can delay your application. We are aware of the issues that can come up after you have the 501c3 because we've done these so many times. So, you know, please use an expert to help you with this. And you're always welcome to reach out to us and we'd be happy to work with you to make sure that everything gets done from start to finish and it's done correctly. And then, of course, you get the exemption and that you are in compliance with the federal and the state requirements as well. All right. I think that's fair. You don't know what you don't know. So use somebody who does. And uh, and that way it goes through much smoother. Your job is to go out there. And if you're in the nonprofit realm is to go have a, a great effect on the public and take your idea and make it into reality. Let the pencil pushers do all the compliance stuff so that you don't have to get in the way of that. Because yeah. uh, a little mistake could, could lead to disastrous consequences. So reach out to Cream. I'll put your information in the uh, show notes and down below so that they can link and click and and get with your team. And you have a full team, right? You guys do the compliance, the setup, the formation of the entities and and make sure that it runs and hums, right? Yeah, we have a dream team. They they do a fantastic job. And we also have a weekly Q&A session, which I'm proud of as well. So you can hop on every single week on Tuesdays for one hour, ask all your questions. And we answer about anywhere from 30 to 50 questions as well. So we're always accessible, always available. There's always opportunities to ask us any questions. Um, you know, and again, I'm, I'm proud of the team that we have. It is, it's a fantastic team. They do a fantastic job. Well, that's, that sounds fair enough. So thank you for going over the top 10 mistakes people make when forming or operating a nonprofit. If you know anybody that could benefit from this information, forward it on to them. And as always, uh, go out there and do good things and good luck. Scream. Thanks again for coming on. You brought it, you brought your A game and you gave us a lot to think about. Thanks again. Thank sir. you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode.